Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi listeners, Benjamin here. It's our first Coronapod of the year, and we have a lot to discuss. So once again, we're putting the show out as a standalone podcast. Noah Baker is here, of course, and making his Coronapod debut is freelance reporter Ailey Dolgin. Hello to you both. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Hi Ben, hi Ailey. Indeed, an awful lot to talk about at the beginning of 2021. I feel like we took a break over the holidays and the world moved at a pace that I can barely keep up with and we have to try to catch up now. Oh definitely but before we get into that Ailey you've written for Nature News many times and you've appeared on the podcast a bunch over the years but for people who aren't familiar with your voice what's your beat what do you cover? Broadly speaking biomedical research and drug discovery I kind of Missed some of the early days of the coronavirus outbreak because I was busy watching my kids, but I've been playing a little bit of catch up as the vaccine rollout has been happening. And so now just my life is all vaccines all the time. (laughs) Well, that does seem like a very apt place to start. There's a lot going on in the vaccine sphere, but broadly speaking, where are we right now? We have found ourselves in a position now where approved for emergency use, we have vaccines based on RNA. We have vaccines based on a viral vector, this adenovirus vector, and there's another one of those as well. Um, And we've got live attenuated vaccines, which are these kind of very uh, classic, I suppose, is maybe a word I'm going to use, but perhaps not the the ideal word to use, but a classic sort of um, weakened version of the coronavirus itself, which is being rolled out and data is being gathered about those as we speak. Um, but these RNA vaccines that, that had up until the pandemic never been approved before for use really seem to have like taken the lead in terms of the, the, the vaccines that have been rolled out. And that's something that you've been looking into in quite a lot of detail. Yeah, actually. So about a year and a half ago, I wrote a story for Nature's Outlook section where I got to visit the manufacturing facility that Moderna had just built here in Boston on the outskirts of the city. And when I met with the chief medical officer, actually, most of the discussion was around cancer. It wasn't really around infectious diseases. I mean, they had brought most of the infectious disease vaccines built around RNA into the clinic more than anyone else. But going into the pandemic, there were literally, I think I counted 12 programs that had ever gone into phase one. Moderna launched a phase two, like in December of 2019. And then the coronavirus happens. And all of a sudden, now there are at least six, by my last count, RNA vaccines in the clinic, two now having been proven to be approximately 95% effective and others that are presumably going to have similar levels of efficacy. So it's been just an incredible explosion and uh, boom time for the technology. Yeah, I think it's strange how world events can 
change research priorities. And it's something that we've certainly talked about a lot on Coronapod so far. And these RNA vaccines have had this big boost because of this necessity. And part of the reason that they in particular have had a boost is because part of the fundamental advantage of RNA as a vaccine platform is it's fast to develop a new vaccine, right? And that's one of their big advantages. I think it might be worthwhile if, Ailey, if you could just take us through a little bit about the kind of fundamentals of how this platform works and why that's proven so useful in this scenario. The basic idea is that instead of delivering a bit of the virus or the whole virus to the body, you actually just give it the RNA recipe for making the protein that you want the immune system to recognize and destroy. And so the ability to synthesize RNA and the speed and ease of that is what's really the advantage of this platform. And it best be seen by the fact that Moderna, going back to January 2020 now, about a year ago, when the sequence was posted for the novel coronavirus out of China, they were able to design, synthesize, and manufacture a vaccine candidate in days, literally four days. And then they were doing mouse experiments weeks later, and within two months, or so, they were already in phase one testing in humans. And so the pandemic responsiveness ability with RNA is incredible. And there's just never been a technology platform like this for dealing with novel infections. And that kind of speed to synthesize RNA, that's been around for a little bit of a, a little bit of time. But there's this other sort of key functionality for these types of vaccines that was required, which is what to put them in to get them inside the body. And in this case, it's in what's called lipid nanoparticles. Ailey, can you tell us what they are? Yeah, I mean, um, RNA is an inherently unstable molecule. And so the challenge is getting a way to delivered into the cells in a way that it stays intact, gets to the protein manufacturing system of the cell so that it can produce the proteins to train the immune system. And so the key really was finding these essentially little fat bubbles that could serve as that delivery vehicle. And this was a technology that was really first developed in a different area of drug development. And that field had developed this delivery system, these lipid nanoparticles. And then in 2012, a team at Novartis was the first to kind of borrow that technology and try it with the RNA vaccines, and, and it worked really well. And so that kind of laid the groundwork for all the vaccines that are being built around RNA today. They're all going into these lipid nanoparticles. I mean, so incredibly rapid, as you say, and clearly it's worked because we do have two efficacious vaccines that have been rolled out. But it's not 100% rosy, right? I think we need to be careful there that these vaccines are not without their issues. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the vaccines that exist, they're expensive because the lipid nanoparticle technology and the RNA synthesis itself, it's not cheap to manufacture. They require this cold chain storage, especially with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which has to be kept at these Arctic level conditions of minus 70 degrees. But even the Moderna one currently requires freezer temperatures. They're fairly reactogenic is the term that's used. It's the side effects that you get when you get the shot in the arm. Um, something like 80% of all the participants in the Moderna trial had some kind of systemic reaction Things like headaches and fevers and general muscle pain and malaise. So really feeling quite icky at that. Things that would knock you out for a day or so. But but it is a transient thing. And actually, it's a sign that the vaccine is working, <laughs> ironically. But it's not 
ideal. And just the manufacturing capacity is limited. So if we're going to vaccinate all seven plus billion people in this world, we need other platforms, things that will work, be affordable and be stable within the healthcare systems around the world. And I think, you know, almost all pharmaceuticals, no matter what you look at, vaccines or treatments or drugs, there will be a list of cost benefits for everything. There's always going to be some pros and some cons. But these are particularly important to think about in the context of these vaccine rollouts right now, because some of the downsides, I suppose, of RNA-based technology in particular could have a really big impact in, you know, for example, how many people are willing to take up vaccines at a time when there is this sort of vague sort of underlying bubbling concern amongst many people that perhaps because these vaccines have been developed so fast, something may have gone awry, which of course we've discussed is not really the case in this case, but that is a concern. And the fact that they could elicit things which could cause fear or worry among the populace that they see them being more reactive. And additionally, because they have these side effects, in order to get around that, these vaccines, they need to be given in two lower doses to reduce those side effects. But then having a two-dose vaccine regimen, we know can cause problems because people may miss their second dose or they may not get back there in time for their second dose. And it opens up a whole can of worms, which certainly we've discussed in the UK a lot recently about what the correct dosing regimen should be. (laughs) You know, and these are all really important questions for right now. Yeah, just one small thing. I mean, the two-dose regimen, it's not entirely about side effects. A lot of it is actually just about building enough immunity because we know that the second shot really does help lead to many more antibodies. And that's true with a lot of vaccine platforms, but it's especially true with these RNA vaccines. And as I go into in, in this feature that I have in this week's issue of Nature, there are other ways of designing the RNA vaccines in ways that the vaccine kind of copies itself. And that can help you both lower the dose because you don't need to introduce as much because it's going to make more copies inside the cell. Also, because that copying process makes it look kind of more like a virus, a natural infection, the immune system responds in kind of a stronger and broader way. And so there are mechanisms in the works to improve upon the technology. But in the here and now, definitely, we need to be looking at other vaccine platforms. And each of these platforms, each type of vaccine has its individual costs and benefits. We've talked about some for the RNA vaccines there. So there's still a need for other vaccines to be developed using different platforms to plug the gaps, if you will. But testing new vaccines is becoming more difficult. Absolutely. The challenge now actually is that because the first vaccines were so effective, it's how do you test these other vaccines and show that they work to a similar degree in a way that's ethical and uh, feasible. Because you can't really run a placebo-controlled trial for much longer, at least in many of those countries where the vaccines are now available. Because first of all, it's just problematic to start giving people placebos when they could be getting what's known to be an effective vaccine, you know, and who would ever sign up for that kind of trial, knowing that they have a chance of getting a dummy shot instead of just going and lining up for the actual thing. So what do you do? I mean, how do you get around that problem? Because (laughs) scientists need to get around that problem. And they are. Well, so there is a brief window right now where you can still run a placebo controlled trial, largely by enrolling people who aren't yet eligible for vaccination under the national programs. So maybe you don't target doctors and nurses who are getting the real shots, but there's still plenty of people who don't want to wait three, six months and would 
readily sign up for a trial. Or you hinted at this earlier, they don't like the risks associated with the RNA vaccines. And so they're just more willing to give a protein-based vaccine or a viral vector vaccine a chance, even if there's a risk of getting a placebo. But as one source told me, the window is closing on that. And so the future moves to different kinds of designs where what we need is either some kind of biomarker, levels of an antibody, say, in the blood, that would indicate, okay, you're protected and we don't need to run a field efficacy trial to show that it actually does lead to less disease. And many scientists are frantically trying to figure out what that marker would be. That's currently how vaccines for the seasonal flu or for rabies are assessed, but you need some level of confidence that we can do that for coronavirus. That's probably where things are heading, but it needs to be proven. And then I guess there's a couple of other options, but one that we've talked about on Coronapod is to use what's called human challenge trials, where you can deliberately infect a willing contributor to a trial with the coronavirus so you can directly and measurably assess the efficacy of the vaccine. It's a much smaller trial. It's a much faster trial. And not only that, it would also actually get at this earlier thing I was talking about, the biomarker of protection. You could really directly test that because everything is controlled in a challenge trial. And I think almost everyone agrees that on a scientific level, it's fantastic. The problems are on the ethics and different ethicists have different attitudes, different countries and regulators have different approaches. So I know it's in the works over there in the UK, but I just don't see it happening in the US. I don't think the FDA would allow it. And for whatever cultural reasons, a lot of the experts are just a lot more cautious here. And the problem is that we don't have a good rescue treatment. If we knew that anyone who got infected through a challenge trial could be rapidly cured with drug X, okay, fine, let's go ahead. But until that therapy has been discovered or proven, it's going to remain a controversial approach. You know, in terms of developing these new vaccines, having dozens would be very useful, and we know that. But is this just a case of shortening the time until everyone in the world can get a jab? Or is this a longer term problem? Is it the reality that actually three vaccines that work would be fine? It, it just might take a lot longer to get them to everyone because of the manufacturing delays and all this sort of stuff. And actually, this discussion we're having is just about shortening the pandemic. In 10 years time, it's not going to matter if we have three vaccines or a 1000 vaccines, you know, we've got a vaccine and we can get it to places. I think that's right. It is about shortening the time. Even under the most ambitious timetables, the goals are to get something like 20% of the developing world vaccinated by the end of this year. That's nowhere near what's needed to get herd immunity. So anything we could do to speed that up and to not further drive the economic disparities between different parts of the world would be advantageous. But it's also in the long run, you need a vaccine that works for your healthcare system. And something that requires storage at minus 70 degrees and it's going to cost $30, $40 a shot and require two shots, that's just not going to fly as a long-term strategy, assuming that you need boosters every so often. So part of it is speed, and part of it is also ensuring that every part of the world has something that's affordable and works within their system. And I guess one other question, which is really relevant to a lot of the discussion right now, is how long 
all of these vaccines will be effective because we know that there are a couple of really highly publicized new strains of coronavirus, one in the UK, one in South Africa, are particularly changing the transmission dynamics. And there's a lot of kind of questions about what this might mean for these vaccines that have been developed using, in the case of RNA, spike proteins from one strain, and that spike protein might be slightly different now. And is that enough of a change for the vaccines to be rendered less effective? Where are we on that? Do you have any insight there, Ailey? The latest thinking, as I understand it, is that the variant that came out of the UK while making the virus much more transmissible, is not thought to uh, affect the efficacy of the vaccine. But the one that emerged in South Africa is a bit more problematic, and that studies involving antibodies in the laboratory do suggest that it does weaken the response. It, It won't completely render the vaccines useless because you develop what's called a polyclonal response. So because the vaccine's deliver the entire spike protein to the body. The immune system responds at a number of different points along the spike. And the mutation found in this variant from South Africa perhaps would impact, you know, just one of those sites. But if things keep mutating, in theory, it it could really render the vaccines pretty useless. But fortunately, the RNA platform, because it's so adjustable and modifiable and and can be rapidly changed. In theory, it could be updated in a matter of weeks and we could have coronavirus vaccine 2.0 that is now protective against that variant. And then when a new variant arises and we kind of have to keep iterating and improving upon it. And so then it starts to look a lot like your seasonal flu vaccine. And I know that some people are even talking about basically in the future, you'll go for your annual flu COVID vaccine, and they'll both be packaged together. And one assumes that by this point, there has been the biomarker you discussed before for the vaccine efficacy that has been established. So every time vaccine 2.0 or 3.0 gets created, we don't have to go back through clinical trials each time, which means that you can have something akin to the seasonal flu vaccine. Exactly. You just give it to a bunch of healthy volunteers. You ensure safety every time you make sure that it's producing high enough antibody titers to be protective and you could be deploying it within months of making it really. So this future you describe, it sounds rosy. Maybe it's just because in my head, getting a vaccine just makes me feel really happy as a concept because I've been thinking about it for so long. But it does kind of hinge on the huge development and money and time that's been thrown into vaccines because of the pandemic being sustained somewhat. Do you think that as the pandemic starts to wane, and I'm going to just say that as though it's a certainty, that there will be enough kind of put into these kind of RNA vaccines to continue the progress that they've made so far to allow for this future that you describe? Uh, I'm going to give you an on the one hand, on the other kind of answer, if that's okay. On the one hand, vaccines and infectious diseases remain not huge moneymakers necessarily. So that would work against the technology and any startup that's trying to raise capital to build a new RNA vaccine company. But on the other hand, all the investments, both scientifically, but also in terms of manufacturing capacity, companies like Moderna and Pfizer and all these other companies, they've built massive manufacturing plants to enable the COVID response. And it means that everything they do in the future using this technology and for other infectious diseases becomes cheaper and easier to do. You can already sort of see some hints that interest in infectious diseases 
writ large is growing. Just this week, Moderna announced a few new programs for HIV, flu, and Nipah virus. I spoke to the CEO of BioNTech. They had always been really focused on cancer, but now, thanks to both all the investments they made around the coronavirus vaccine and, I should say, the billions of dollars that they're going to get in returns from all the sales, they have the ability to start thinking more broadly about other infectious diseases. So I think at least among the big companies, they're going to keep at it. I think it will grow. Well, let's leave it there both. It does seem like there are reasons for cautious optimism as we move into 2021. Ailey, you've written a couple of articles for Nature about RNA vaccines and the bumps in the road for testing new vaccines. I'll put links to both of those in this week's show notes, and I hope you'll join us again in future. Ailey and Noah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, guys. Been fun. Thanks so much, Ben. And thanks, Ailey. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 